Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to John. Uh, we'll be in the 21st uh, chapter, and it's, it's also printed here in your bulletin. Before I start, one thing, uh, I'm going to be comfortable here, if that's okay with you. Um, growing up as a black man in the South, you learn to be bilingual, and what that means is you sort of have how you speak to your wife and your children inside of your own home, and then you kind of switch that when you go kind of into the public arena. And so one example is in my, if I'm with my mom, that is not a door, it's a dough, right, right? We just say close the dough, right? But if I'm with you, I'm going to say door. Well, I'm not going to pretend. I'm going to act like I'm in my own house as we open up God's Word this morning. Is that okay with you? All right. So John 21, verse 1 through 14. And after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. And bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread, and he gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and the word of our God will endure forever. The word of God is living and active. It was breathed out by the Spirit as the Spirit of God carried men along that he wrote through them using their personalities that the Word of God is alive, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it is able to pierce us even to the soul and marrow, that it is profitable for teaching and correcting and humbling and encouraging. And, oh, Father, we pray that you would do all of that through your servant, for your people, for the glory of Jesus. Right now we pray. Amen. So uh, one of my favorite Marvel movies is the movie uh, The Black Panther. And it's been out long enough, so if you have not watched it, I am not going to apologize for sharing this little nugget. 
We have a rule in my church. You got three months to watch a movie, and then it is fair game in the pulpit. Now, uh, if you've watched a movie, uh, one of the themes of many is this theme of revenge, that uh, imagine one king, and his name is King Tachaka, and he is ruler of Wakanda, and he has a brother who is uh, Prince Njobu. And Njobu chooses to leave Wakanda, and he chooses to live in the States, and uh, T'Chaka has a son named, named T'Challa, and so he's kind of the heir apparent. Well, in the process of the movie, you learn that King T'Chaka, uh, something happens in Wakanda where one of their precious resources is stolen, and rumor kind of makes it through the kingdom that his own brother, who's living in the States, might have a role in it. And so he travels on this beautiful ship, and he lands in California, and he confronts his brother, Prince Njobu. And in that confrontation, Njobu lies and says that he has nothing to do with it, but he doesn't know that the man who's been working with him for those years is a spy for the Wakandans, and so he is, his plot is kind of it, it's uncovered. And in that moment, he is killed by his own brother, the king, for treason. Now, here's what we don't really know is that Njobu has a son whose name is Killmonger. And so uh, T'Chaka is later killed in an explosion. And so now T'Chaka's son becomes the king, and his name is T'Challa. And T'Challa is ruling over Wakanda, but then the past catches up with him because his father killed his own brother, and that brother had a son. And that brother's son uh, was named Killmonger. And he's half Wakandan and half American, and he has a rightful place in the throne. And so throughout this movie, you see him come back in surfaces, and then he finally makes it to T'Challa, and he says this, I've lived my entire life waiting for this moment. I've trained a lot. I killed people in America, Afghanistan, and Iraq. All of this death just so that I could come and kill you. One of the things of the movie is revenge. If you haven't seen that, you've seen the movie Taken by, with Liam Neeson. And in that movie, this father who has these various, very deadly set of weapons, his daughter travels to Europe and she does what teenagers do and she doesn't call home. And so he, call, he calls her and calls her and calls her. And finally he gets her. And when he gets her, she's on the phone and she sees some men break into their hotel room and she's panicking and she's telling her dad and her dad says, they're going to take you. Get under the bed, leave the phone open, they're going to take you. And those men come in and they take her and they realize that this phone is open and they pull the phone and he gets on the phone and her dad, who's in America, says, I don't know who you are and I don't know what you want. I don't have money, but what I do have is a special set of skills that makes me a nightmare for men like you. You can let my daughter go now, and we will be okay. But if you do not, I will find you, and I will hunt you down, and I will kill you. And that's the movie. The whole movie is him tracking down this man, hunting him down, and killing that man, right? Vengeance. It's a popular narrative in Hollywood. If you were new to the Bible and new to John's gospel. And you just read what we read in John 17, 18, and 19, that you really see the death of a son. 
You see, the death of the Lord Jesus at the hands of evil men, they betrayed him, crucified him, mocked him, put on him a crown of thorns. They strung him up on a cross and they crucified the Lord of glory. And you would expect, if you were new to the Bible, if you had not known anything, you would expect that this will sound and follow a lot like the Black Panther. It will follow the script of the movie Taken, where this father comes down and says, hey, I have a very serious set of skills, and I will find all of you, every one of you, and I will make you pay. And if the father doesn't do that, then you would expect that this son who we see in the text is alive again. You would expect if the father will not take out his vengeance, then the son will. The son will get up and come in wrath and fury and will just speak and your body just disintegrates, right? And yet that's not how the Bible reads. That if you turn into the book of Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4... Peter actually goes and preaches. He says, O men of Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus Christ was revealed to you, and God worked mighty deeds in your midst, and you crucified him, and you killed him. And you're thinking, like, Peter Peter is not talking to strangers. He's talking to the people who played a role in killing the Lord Jesus. And you know what happens in Acts? 3,000 of them come to believe. And he does it again in the next chapter. He goes to to the colonnade of Solomon, the same place Jesus stood and preached in John 10. He goes back to the same place and preaches in the same temple mount and preaches to the same people. And 5,000 believe. How is this that you kill the Lord of glory and 40 days later you inherit eternal life? That isn't right. That doesn't follow the script. And when we read it, we ought to say... Wow, who is this God that gives amazing grace to astonishing sinners? Who is this God who does not repay what we owe? Who is this God who does not take on vengeance and destroy the people who destroyed the Lord of glory? Who is this God? He does not fit in categories of this world. And here's the question. How would he treat his own disciples, what would be his response to them? And what John wants to show us is that the resurrected Jesus doesn't respond to their betrayal with revenge. Rather, he gives amazing grace to astonishing sinners. And the first thing is that the disciples, they too, need amazing grace. And that's the first point. I don't know what you have in your mind about the disciples, but they were failures. Yes, they left the fishing business. Yes, they left the tax collecting business. Yes, they left zealot movements. Yes, they left all of these things behind. And they spent three years with Jesus teaching them how to read scriptures. He taught them how to pray. He expounded the kingdom, and he actually calls them this in John. I no longer call you servants. I call you my friends. And what you learn is they were not good friends to Jesus. 
Judas sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. That's it. 30 pieces of silver, and you crucify and betray the Lord of glory. What's that, $3,000? That's the price on Jesus' head for you, Judas, $3,000. What about Peter? He denies him three times, all right? What about the three in his inner circle? When he asked them to pray, they went to sleep. What about when he was hauled off, they scattered? What about when he needed help carrying the cross to Golgotha? Who would help him? He had two Simons in his group, Simon Peter and Simon the Zealot, and that is not the Simon who helped Jesus carry his cross. It's Simon, a Cyrenian man from northern Africa. That is who happened to be in Jerusalem, who was happened to be called upon to help the Lord of glory carry his cross. Where are his friends? Nowhere to be found. What about when he died on the cross? Well, maybe his friends would get his body down and give him a proper burial. No, they didn't do that either. It was Joseph of Arimathea who was a secret disciple of Jesus and a man named Nicodemus who came to Jesus in the night two other times in John's gospel and women that they were the ones who went and got the body of Jesus off of a cross and gave him a proper burial. And where were his friends? Locked in a room, afraid in the last chapter. And on the boat, on the lake, fishing in this chapter. Did you catch that? Peter says, well, I think I'm going to go back to fishing. And so he puts on his fishing attire and goes out to fish. You just betrayed your friend, homeboy, and you are on a boat fishing. Well, maybe you're going to go back and get back into the fishing business, homeboy, right? Think about it. And that's what they're doing. They're on a lake fishing. And John says that 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 night... They caught nothing. And night in John's gospel is not just an indicator of the time of day. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night. Judas betrayed Jesus in the night. The way John uses darkness, that light has come into the world, and the people love the night. They love the darkness. And so it's not just the day, the point of time in which they're fishing. John is saying they're in a really, really dark, dark, dark place that they don't even see. You've been there before? In that dark place where the grace of God does not move you? You've been in that dark place? where you're going through the motions and you're looking at your watch right now. I wish this guy would just get it over with so that we can go do everything else we want to do today. Have you been in that dark place where you have blown it? You, you blew it at parenting. Have you been in that dark place where you have been unfaithful to your marriage vows? Have you been in that dark place where you overspent last month and you have shown once again that the idol of your life is money and possession and riches? Have you been in that dark place where you've watched so much TV and not enough scripture? You're watching more TV than, it, than, than taking in the word of God. Have you been in that dark place where you're unmoved by God's majesty? 
you haven't been in it, you will be. We all will have those moments. And here's the thing. They just played a role in crucifying the Lord of glory. Put that on your resume. You think they know how you feel in this moment right now? You think Jesus is off-put by whatever it is that you have done? Do you think that it causes God to cringe and to move away? Or do you believe that the Father knows exactly what it means to be in darkness because these disciples are there, right there with it? Now, here's the question. Will the darkness lift? Is there hope when you've done the unimaginable? Is there hope? Is there help? And here's the second thing we learn about this passage is that Jesus has amazing grace to give to those in the dark places of life. That I personally think that verse 4 is the linchpin of the text. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. And in the black church, there's this saying, and I can hear my grandmother saying it, baby, the Lord might not come when you want him to, but he's always going to be on time. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. And here is what you see happening in the text. Jesus lets them linger in the darkness for a while, but joy cometh in the morning. See, I think Jesus knows, right? He himself has tasted the darkness. He was betrayed at night. That when he was crucified, darkness came across the face of the land. He who knew no sin was becoming sin for us. And he died on a cross and was put in a tomb. And he was shut off from the land of the living in utter darkness. But the Father would not let the Holy One see corruption. The Father would not abandon the soul to she- his son to Sheol. And the Father says, okay, on the third day, son, my son, arise. And we celebrate that with Easter. And here you have Jesus doing the same thing for the disciples. They're in the darkness. They've been fishing. They have the doubts. They're shut off from light. And Jesus says, no more. The light will shine on you. On that particular day, the S-U-N is serving the S-O-N. And so when daylight breaks, it's not just the tick talk. It's now six o'clock. No, don't read it that way. If darkness in John's gospel means they're in a spiritually dark place, then the day, the breaking in of the day, it means that grace is starting to shine upon them. And look at the text. It's absolutely beautiful. That when we talk about grace, we can say that it's God's riches at Christ's expense. We can say that grace is God's unmerited flavor, unmerited favor, and that does not do justice to grace. What you see in this text is the resurrected Jesus' actions in this passage take the grace of the cross 
from something abstract to something they can taste and touch and see and feel. It takes the grace of God from an idea to a reality, from a concept to something they can experience. And here is what we learn about the amazing grace of God in this passage. First, it is a grace that pursues people who need it. There's a reason we're given those specific names of men in verse 2. Simon and Thomas and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples. John is telling us these names because these were the same names who crucified the Lord of glory. And here is what you see happening in the text. John is to know these same jokers who just did this stuff. You see three chapters back. It's these dudes right here. And did you notice that Jesus went to them? They were 60 to 70 miles north on the Sea of Tiberias fishing and Jesus does not say, hey, y'all come back down here to Jerusalem. The text actually says he went there and revealed himself there. They're running north of Jerusalem, and Jesus says, okay, you can run, but I'm going to track your tail down and smother you with my grace. And that's exactly what happens. He shows up on the scene. He finds them. He, and look, I don't know, does he phase himself there? Because this is like the glorified Jesus who can kind of walk through walls. I, I just, I don't know, right? How does he get there? We don't know. We know he goes. He goes after them. That's his grace. It pursues people who need it. The second thing is his grace is persistent. This isn't the first time. Look at verse 14 at the bottom. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. This isn't the first time. He says, I'm going to keep going and keep going and keep going until you get it. Now, what's beautiful in the Greek about this passage is notice in verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, right? So, This is Jesus taking the active role in revealing himself to the disciples. Now, look at verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. In other words, someone else is revealing Jesus as well. You get it? In one instance, he's active. In the other instance, he's passive. Well, who is the second person revealing the Lord of glory. It's the Father. The Father who should take out his wrath against the murderers of his son. It's the Father who actually says, no, the Son will reveal himself to you and chase you down. And also, it's me. Our hearts are in tune with one another. You are twicely smothered and covered and pursued with grace. Make no mistake, there is no disconnect between the Father and the Son. We both mutually want you to experience this peace. And he doesn't just come this time, he stays 40 days. And he doesn't just stay 40 days, that when he ascends in the book of Acts to the right hand of the Father, that he actually says, my spirit will come and he will one-up you. He will not come and be with you. He will actually take residence 
in you, and I will always be with you, never to leave you, never ever to forsake you, always to bear witness to your soul that you're mine. It's a grace that is persistent. It's a grace that is endearing. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? The first words out of his mouth, it's my children. I can think of a hundred things I would be calling all of them, and my children is not one of them. You catch that? He doesn't call them fake. He doesn't call them phony. He doesn't bring up what they just did. He says, my children. And it's a grace that serves. They're trying to fish and they can't do it. And so Jesus tells them to cast a net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And they did, 153. And I think our tendency is to look at that and think that that's the miracle. That isn't the main miracle. He's done that before already in the Gospels. You know what the miracle is? It's right there in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish already laid on it and bread. Notice when Jesus asked them for their fish. It's in verse 10. Well, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. But when they got to the shore, the meal was already prepared. Jesus didn't need they fish, right? He didn't need it. This is a meal. This is the deepest display of community in Jewish culture. This is if you sit down with me, then we're good. This is you sit down with me, then we're at peace. And that is what Jesus is doing. It reads as if on that day when he got up, that he wants to have a picnic with those who played him. He wants to have breakfast with those who betrayed him. He wants to have food with spiritual felons, and he would be the chef, and he would be the host. And his back, his, the background noise would be the sound of the waves and the location of the meal would not be in his home. Well, technically it is, but it's on the seashore. And the ambient lighting will be the breaking of, of the sun that he spoke into existence by his own words. And on the menu would be fish that he didn't need them to go and get. And the means of cooking would be a big green egg right there, right there, right? A charcoal with bread, and he would be the host. You know what he's saying? We're good. And this would be the most expensive meal ever because the price of this meal was the death of the son. You see, he can have table fellowship with sinners because he took the sin of sinners away a few days before. This is not a cheap meal. This is a meal validating the cost 
of table fellowship with a holy God. The reason he can serve you and not bring up your sins of yesterday is because the sins of yesterday have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west, and they will be remembered no more, says the Lord of glory. This entire scene is grace. He pursues them. He pers- he's persistent. He calls them with this endearing name, and he serves them. May you never reduce God's grace to simply his unmerited favor. It's that, but that is just the beginning of it. Here's the last point. Well, what's the purpose of this snippet of grace? To get to this, you've got to turn back one chapter in your Bibles. You don't have to. I'll read it. But in Luke 20, verse 30, it says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing that you may have life in his name. You want to know who the you is in that text? It's you. Do not read this like a history lesson. Let me figure out where it is. Let me figure out who was there. Let me figure out what happened so that I can memorize some theological facts John says, no, that is God wrong. This is in the Bible so that we who read the Bible might draw the conclusion that in the same way that Jesus gave amazing grace to astonishing sinners, that that is true for you right here and right now in Greenville, South Carolina. Do y'all say Greenville or Greenville? See, we say Greenville. We got a Greenville in Mississippi, so... Do you believe that he constantly pursues you? Do you believe that right now he is pursuing you through this text and through these sacraments? Do you believe that the Lord of glory is pursuing you right here and right now? He is spreading a table and he is saying, whatever it is, we're good. I pay for that on the cross. That's one reason this is in the text so that we would make the connection from them then and there to us here and now. And there are two other reasons why I think this is in the passage. One is that we would actually not just believe that this grace is real, but that we would move towards the one who gives the grace. You see that in verse 7. That just then, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And look at Peter. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. Do you see the image? When they see amazing grace and the amazing giver of the grace, they move towards him. 
They jump in the sea and run and row to be with the one who is giving grace. And that is my admonishment to you this morning. Don't just say, okay, that's cool. Jesus says, no, repent and believe and come to me. Well, I did this, pastor. He gives grace. Well, I did this, pastor. He gives grace. Well, I thought this, pastor. He gives grace. You have to see that your sin is not ended with a comma. I mean, with the period, it's your sin, comma, but your Father and the Son will still give grace. We all have these spiritual resumes, right, that we have this ministry at our church called Work Life, and we're trying to find people who are unemployed or underemployed, and it's from the Chalmers Institute, and there's a chapter in that book where the participants have to deal with the gaps in their resume. There's one young man in there who was in prison for four years. You just got to talk about that when you meet with an employer. You got an ankle bracelet on. You're going to walk into work and sit across a job, and they're going to see you. And in the class, they are taught to not run from what is bad, but to own it and have an explanation and get it out there and have a response for your employer. Don't just be surprised by it. Assume that they will call you to account on it and have an explanation. If you think employers want to know the gaps in your resume, don't you think that the gaps in your spiritual life, they also matter to the Lord? And here is what God says to you. You don't have to hide that thing you did 30 years ago. You don't have to hide that thing that you did three weeks ago. I see it. Let me cover it. Do you believe that? Come near to the giver of grace. But that's the, uh, the, that, the last thing is that they might be sent out that if you've read the Gospels, then you realize that this isn't the first time the disciples go fishing and can catch nothing. That also happened in Luke chapter 5. At the beginning, when Jesus was calling the disciples, they were out on a boat fishing and could not catch anything all night. And Jesus shows up, hey, throw it on that side. It's like, man, we're fishermen. What are you going to tell us to do about fish? He says, just do it. Just trust me. And they throw the net out, and they get so many fish, the nets are breaking. And then Peter bows down. He says, Lord, get away from me. I'm unclean. Peter sees that this is the Lord of glory. And Jesus says what? Okay, you got this now. Guess what? I'm going to make you fishers of men. He used that episode in that lake on Luke 5 to commission them and call them into gospel ministry. And here we are in John. And it says, Sea of Tiberias here, which is also Lake Gennesaret in Luke chapter 5. It's the same lake, same lake. And what does Jesus do? He says, okay, y'all tried to fish without me tonight, huh? Y'all caught nothing. But now that I'm here, go throw the net one more time. This wasn't about them providing fish for the meal. Jesus already had the fish. Then why are they giving fish? Because Jesus is saying, I commissioned you in Luke 5, and I called you off of this lake 
and you betrayed me, and you crucified me, and your betrayal and your sin does not interrupt my calling on you. The calling to be my disciple is still intact, and you will still go out and be fishers of men, and you will make much of grace, and you will walk out of your loving grace, loving me, and you will catch so many people, and I will not lose one of them. They are being recommissioned. They hear about grace, and now they experience it. That is my desire for you downtown, that you would come, make much of it, sing of it, and that you would let Jesus use you and your brokenness to tell the world about God's amazing grace. Let's pray. Our Father, would you wrap our hearts around this truth of your grace and your love in Christ? This is not cheap grace. It was grace at the expense of the death of your son. But if you have given us him, how much more freely will you give us all things? May you allow this to wash over us and change us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.